Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Father David McConey, S.J., Assistant Professor of Theological Studies at St. Louis University, giving a talk entitled Constantine Christ and the Cross, the Edict of Milan, 1700 Years Later, part of the Distinguished Speakers Series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. So we gather tonight to talk about Constantine and his impact on our Christian life. Because 1700 years ago, he issued two monumental decrees, the Edict of Milan and the Oration to the Saints. Born in 272, Flavius Valerius Constantinus became Emperor Constantine in 306, and after his death in 336 became known to most as Constantine the Great, and even to some Christians in the East, Saint Constantine. Although he did kill a wife and a son, so he's not recognized as a saint in the West. As all students of history know, Constantine's life represents a watershed in both civil as well as ecclesial intrigue. Yet how groundbreaking was he really? Is he the first Christian emperor? Perhaps. But if we take the best of ancient historians seriously, the emperor Philip the Arab, 244 to 249, we know performed public penance under the bishop Babylus of Antioch. So around 246, 247, there's an instance of the Emperor Philip doing public penance. Was Constantine the first to proclaim Christians no longer enemies of the state? Well, the Galerius, the emperor at the time in 311, issued the Edict of Toleration, which set forth the very position the Edict of Milan um, held out. Yet Constantine's influence cannot be understood simply through novelty, but through lasting influence. The first Roman ruler to call an ecumenical church council, the first to secure the church's autonomy, the first to involve himself in the internal workings of Christianity, both in doctrine and in discipline, appointing bishops and enforcing laws. For this, he is to some the first guarantor of Christian freedom, while to others he's the first usurper of gospel simplicity and the true life Christ wants for his followers. The Edict of Milan is brief. You have it in front of you. It exists in about one paragraph of tightly woven Greek and Latin. Disappointingly, it proves to be much more of a legal mandate than any theological treatise. But I also want to argue tonight, and we'll end with this, probably around 10.30 or so, that in 313, the Emperor Constantine also delivered the Oration to the Saints, the Oratio, a treatise not always dated to 313, aiming to show his constituency that his Christian affection was real and his conversion was authentic. It is his way of standing in front of those whose allegiance he needed that he was now one of them. As such, I want to end tonight by examining the Orazio as a piece of authentic 4th century Christian apology of how the Emperor of Rome declared to his subjects that he's come to understand and accept the core teachings of their Catholic faith. All right, so the three things we're going to do tonight is first, look at the persecutions of Christians before Constantine. Look through the 2nd, 3rd, and early 4th century. The second thing we'll do is to look at the Edict of Milan. And then the third is to look at this oration to the saints, all right? Before the Constantinian turn, as scholars call the year 313, Christians were a pursued and persecuted sect of misunderstood Jews. For the most part, Rome left Christians alone. And as long as they paid their taxes and seemed peaceable enough, most Christian communities were left in relative calm. What the Romans couldn't understand was the theology of the core Christian belief, that God became human and subjected himself to other men. It was the cross that cried out loudly, most loudly, as the scandalous instrument of human salvation. 
The earliest piece of anti-Christian graffiti traceable today is the famed etching in Rome on a wall located originally off the Palatine Hill. It's dated from the late first century. And those of you who have had a little Greek, you can read, supposedly there's a laser here, hopefully this won't burn the choir girls behind there. <laughs> All right. You can see the Alpha, Lambda, Epsilon. Alexamenos, Sebete, Theon. Alexamenos worships his God. And look at the God. Yeah, it's an ass on a cross. The earliest piece of anti-Christian graffiti we have. This tells you how the Romans were mocking our older brothers and sisters. All right. We also know in the year 64 AD from the pagan historian Tacitus, I don't know if you can read this, but let me read it. This comes from his, his famous annals. Yet no human effort, no princely largesse, nor offerings to the gods could make that infamous rumor disappear that Nero had somehow ordered the fire in 64 AD. Therefore, in order to abolish that rumor, Nero falsely accused and executed with the most exquisite punishments those people called Christians, who were infamous for their abominations. The originator of the name Christ was executed as a criminal by the procurator Pontius Pilatus. Isn't that interesting? We Christians are easier on Pontius Pilate, aren't we? In the creed we say under, just giving the historical. We don't blame Pontius Pilate for crucifying Jesus, but the Romans do. By the procurator Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius, and though repressed, Christianity, this destructive superstition erupted again, not only through Judea, which was the origin of this evil, but also through the city of Rome, to which all that is horrible and shameful floods together and is celebrated. This could have been written last year. Therefore, first those who see were seized were admitted their faith, and then using the information they provided, a vast multitude were convicted, not so much for the crime of burning the city, but for hatred of the human race. And for perishing, they were additionally made into sports. This is, this is something. They were killed by dogs, having the hides of beasts attached to them, or they were nailed to crosses or set aflame. And when daylight passed away, they were used as nighttime lamps. Even though they were clearly guilty and merited being made the most recent example of the consequences of crime, people began to pity these sufferers because they were consumed not for the public good, but on account of the fierceness of one man, namely Nero. One of the Roman sports that it seemed to intrigue people the most is taking Christian children and sewing them up inside of the hides of beasts, bear skins, lion skins, and setting wild dogs loose on them. And the other that um, Tacitus mentions is setting Christians in pitch and tar and lighting them on fire. And there's one account in which, um, I forget which emperor had, they have to go inside because the stench is so bad from those, those, human, those human lamps. But let's look at the abominations. The first that Tacitus mentions is the odium populi, the hatred of the people. All right? You have to remember one thing about ancient religion before Judaism. It's a way of procuring the gods and goddesses' favor. And if you weren't praying to the correct gods and goddesses, you hated your neighbor because it was for them that we prayed. Roman religion is a civil religion, the transcendent instrument of imperial success. To pray was to elevate the empire and secure the gods and goddesses' protection. The second most common claim was one of incest, all right? That we Christians married those whom we call brother and sister. Here, some of the later second century literature especially bordered on the obscene, accusing Christians of all sorts of orgies and sexual vices, a standard move in state-sanctioned propaganda even to this day. The third, and I think the most doctrinally wonderful, is cannibalism, <laughs> right? 
we know that the Eucharist makes the church. And without the body and blood of Christ present, the incarnation wouldn't have any lasting influence, right? What saves our soul is the body and blood of Christ. And if that body and blood isn't here, Christianity would be simply a way of remembering Jesus or a way of looking forward to him. But having that body and blood and taking that seriously, I think, is a, a call to each of us to take our Eucharistic lives more seriously. With such accusations came worry that the empire and the empire's religious obligations were being diluted. For political unity was the goal of Roman religion, to win the favor of the divinities by praying in unison and with collective desire, to have Rome blessed, to gain a bountiful crop, and to keep the borders of Rome ever expanding and ever victorious. Now remember one thing. Christians were not persecuted for worshiping Jesus. They were persecuted for not worshiping the gods of Rome, the gods and goddesses of Rome. The Romans had room for one more deity. If they wanted to add Jesus along with Jupiter and, and Juno, no problem. But Christians were too hard-headed, too stiff-necked to do that. And this is, one of the, this is one of the unpolitically correct things of Christianity, right? I'm the way, the life, and the truth. I'm not a way, I'm not a truth, I am the way. And so the Christians obviously couldn't worship Jesus alongside the Roman gods and goddesses. But I think, you know, as intellectually sophisticated people, you should realize that they're not persecuted for worshiping Jesus. That's a bit of a misunderstanding. They're persecuted for not worshiping the right gods and goddesses. Martyrial literature then arose in the second century, early on, as a way of educating Christians in the core tenets of the faith, as well as a way of promoting the church's new heroes, almost an early form of pastime, intending to edify as well as to entertain. As the church grew, some stories became integral to the developing rule of faith. You've probably heard that term, regula fide, the rule of faith. As the church grew, she learned to quote certain theologians and not others. She learned to hold up stories of certain saints and not other lives. And this rule of faith guided how Christians would read scripture, pray, and act. Three of the most popular and foundational stories come from, first, Ignatius of Antioch, you probably have read this before his letter to the Romans. He's being dragged from Syria to Rome around 107. And he writes this to the people of Rome. I'm God's wheat and shall be ground by the teeth of wild animals. I'm writing to all the churches to let it be known that I will gladly die for God if only you do not stand in my way. I plead with you, show me no untimely kindness. Let me be food for the wild beasts. They are my way to God. I am God's wheat and shall be ground by their teeth so that I may become Christ's pure bread. Pray to Christ for me that the animals will be the means of making me a sacrificial victim for God. Isn't that beautiful? Or who was it? Uh, Flannery O'Connor said, I'm not holy enough to be a saint, but I could probably be a martyr if you killed me quickly enough. All right? <laughs> this poor guy was months being dragged to Rome. The second most popular is the Polycarp of Smyrna, probably around 150, that might be a little early. So the proud council said to the bishop, if you will not repent, I shall cause you to be consumed by fire. But Polycarp replied, and this is in modern day, modern day Turkey. If you ever asked a question about ancient church history, location-wise, always 90 times, 90% of the times you're gonna be right if you say modern day Turkey, all right? <laughs> Polycarp replied, sure, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour, but afterwards is extinguished. Yet you're ignorant of the true fire of the coming judgment of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you hesitate? Bring forth what you have planned. 
And then the fire shaping itself into the form of an arch, like the sail of a ship when filled with the wind, encompassed as by a circle of the body of the martyr. And he appeared within, not like flesh which is burnt, but as bread that is baked, or as gold and silver glowing in a furnace. Moreover, we perceive such a sweet odor coming from the pile as a frankincense, or some such precious spices had been smoking there. Again, you get that Eucharistic sense of martyrdom, Polycarp becoming the bread of Christ. The fire doesn't consume him. They eventually have to have a sword take his head off. That took three times. You get a lot of these kind of you know, entertaining, entertaining lines and images. One of the most popular is Perpetua and Felicity. Okay. This is uh, under Septimus Severus, uh, around 202 probably. Felicity was sorrowing in the difficulty of labor, natural to an eight-month's delivery. And one of the servants of the jailer said to her, You who are in such suffering now, what will you do when you are thrown to the beasts, which you despise when you refuse to sacrifice? Guys, never say that to your wives when they're eight months pregnant, for one thing, right? <laughs> she replied, Now I alone suffer what I suffer, but then there will be another in me who will suffer for me, because I also am about to suffer for him. Thus she brought forth a little girl, which a certain sister brought up as her daughter. I use this line because a lot of the martyrial literature, literature will attribute the sufferings to Christ, kind of a translation of Galatians 2.20, right? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's not really I who am suffering, but the crucified Christ who continues to suffer in me. Right? Now, with the rise of this new genre of literature, martyrial literature, also came the revival of an ancient form of writing, the apology. From the Greek legal term to defend oneself, right? Apologos, to use words to get away from something. Traditionally, Justin the Martyr is known as the first Christian apologist. I once had a student ask me, this is a good question, wasn't Justin scared going through life known as the martyr? Well, he got that name later, all right? He wrote under the Emperor Antonina's... Maybe she's here. Maybe she's a grad student here. Antoninus Pius, possibly as early as 147. In Justin, we see the best of Greek Platonism informed by Christian revelation in a reasoned appeal to the emperor for two things, for the coherence of the Christian faith as well as the unquestionable civility of the Christian Roman. Christian apology wants to do two things, show that Christianity is intellectually not only acceptable but, but uh, better and also to show that Christians are not bad citizens, right? The most important apologists of the second century are Justin Martyr, his student Tatian, Aristides, Athenagoras of Athens, and Minucius Felix, all right? And again, the purpose there is to defend Christianity from intellectual superstition, that we have a reasonable faith, we have a well-thought-out creed, and also that we are not subversive politically, all right? Let's look at one example, Justin's first apology. We have been taught that Christ is the firstborn of God. All right, so this is, this is maybe as early as 147. And remember, his friends are being crucified. His friends are being killed. And we've been taught that Christ is the firstborn of God. And we have declared that he is the word of whom every race of men were partakers. And those who lived reasonably are Christians. Isn't that something? You could also translate that line, those who live in accord with Logos are Christians. Those who live in accordance with truth and beauty and goodness are Christians. 
even though they've been thought atheists. Atheists is among the Greeks, Socrates and Heraclitus, and men like them. And among the barbarians, Abraham, Ananias, Azarias, Mishael, Elias, and many others whose actions and names we now decline to recount because we know it would be too tedious. You see this move off in the argument from antiquity, that in the ancient world, to be better was to be older, right? Nowadays, we go through a phone in about six months and we toss it away for the newer model, right? That's kind of a post-enlightenment way of understanding what's best. In the ancient world, imitation, pattern, drawing from the most ancient sources what was best. And so Christians were out to show that Christianity was the truest religion because it was the oldest. St. Augustine has a wonderful line. He said, Christianity began not with the incarnation, but at creation. That the whole world was created for Christ. And so Christianity, in a way, begins there. And then another, this is continuing in section 46. So that even they who lived before Christ and lived without reason were wicked and hostile to Christ and slew those who lived reasonably. But who through the power of the word, according to the will of God and the Father and Lord of all, God the Father and Lord of all, he was born of a virgin as a man, was named Jesus, was crucified and died and rose again and ascended into heaven. An intelligent man will be able to comprehend for what has already been so widely said. You see this argument from universality, that in the second century, the Christians know that their faith is not limited to any one land, any one people. All right? One of the reasons the Roman Empire was able to advance so quickly is that they would incorporate any religious traditions into their own. All right? They didn't really hold on to any kind of exclusive cult. But the Christians are saying, no, look, there is one God, and this one God is slowly taking over the whole empire. During the second century, the types of persecutions Justin tried to defend Christians from were isolated events. Local magistrates beset by some setback or problem would decide to corral in his subjects and force any deviance to a common act of worship. This usually involves sacrifice. So let's say I lost a battle. Let's say there were bad crops that year. What would happen? I'm going to try to fix this. To those listening at home, I'm sorry. Okay. What would happen then, the local magistrate, the procurator, or the governor of the area would call in usually the men of every household to offer sacrifice to an image of the emperor. Okay? And you had to do this to show that you were on board in this common civil act of asking the gods and goddesses to bless your land and country. Those who refused were subject to a very heavy fine. They could have faced exile or even execution. But in the year 250, things changed drastically. The emperor Decius, that's Decius, he looks mean, decided that all men and women in the Roman Empire should sacrifice to his image. Most scholars argue that with the passing of the first Roman millennium, which would have been 247, all right, supposedly Rome was founded in the year 753 BC, or what the Romans would say, AUC, ab urbe condita, from the founding of the city in 753. So what's 753, what's 1,000 minus 753? 247, yeah. That Decius noticed that not much was done in the empire to honor the millennial celebration of Rome, and so he ordered all citizens to sacrifice to his image in the year 250. To ensure this, he devised the first imperial-wide system of little books, libelli in Latin, L-I-B-E-L-L-I, -L -L -I, libelli. Little booklets that acknowledge exactly how a Roman citizen worshipped. Such certificates allowed a man to walk the streets of any Roman village without hindrance. Kind of like in Soviet Russia, you had, you know, you had your card, you could show people. 
they could act above reproach when asked on whose side one worshiped. Now notice one of these labelli we have. To the commissioners for the sacrifices in the village of Alexander's Island, from Aurelius Diogenes, son of Sarabus, of the village of Alexander, Alexander's Island, age 72, scar on right eyebrow. The receipt of the presiding official reads, I certify that I witnessed his sacrifice, Aurelius Cyrus, dated his first year of the Emperor Caesar Gaius Macius Quintus Trajanus Decius, who's Pius Felix and Augustus, dated 26th of June, 250. All right. How would you like that? Live a heroic life and known for your right scar eyebrow. But yeah. <laughs> So this is the kind of thing that's being handed out, and there are different degrees of them. There were those who offered just incense, there were some who offered blood, um, and so there were different varying degrees of, of worship. The persecutions of Decius were short-lived, and by all accounts, fairly unsuccessful. But they did, of course, raise new ecclesial problems. How were Christians to treat those of the faith, especially the clergy, who capitulated and colluded with the Romans? Men like Cyprian of Carthage, you probably heard of him, right? Died in 258. Novation, Pope Stephen and Sixtus II, both martyred under the next emperor, Valerian, 253-259. All had to work out an acceptable way of welcoming Christians back into the fold. There are those who said, no, look, once you've done something so heinous and so drastic, you can't come back. And those who would say, well, you can, but you have to be rebaptized. And those who simply said, no, look, a public act of penance will be enough. And we see this in 250, we see this again in 300s with the Diocletian persecutions. And I think what's important is to realize the rigorists always lose, that the church is a very welcoming mother and you are never fully kicked out if you wanna come back and you certainly don't have to be rebaptized that the power of the sacrament doesn't depend on you, that rigorism always fails in these situations. After a few decades of relative peace, a new emperor arises, a guy named Diocletian. Diocletian worked his way up the Roman ranks with a sword, a bold and efficient general who was proclaimed emperor in 284, and within a decade had revolutionized the way Roman rule would be carried out. In 293, so just about 10 years later, he appointed a co-emperor in the east. The empire was getting too big. Right? The Roman Empire was stretching from Iraq to England. So he appointed a co-emperor with equal power in the east, and they took the name Augustus. So there were two Augusti, right? And then under them, there were two co-rulers called Caesars, who would assist them in ruling the ever-expanding frontiers of the Roman Empire. So the beginning of the Tetrarchy was this. In the west was a guy named Maximian, and then his Caesar, Constantius. You can see where this is going, huh? Huh? Those yawns will pay off. All right. In the east... Diocletian, whose idea this was, and under him a guy named Galerius, who I don't know really how to think about him, but we'll get to him. All right. I'm not that he cares what I think of him. Visiting Antioch in modern-day Syria in 299, Diocletian first noticed the supposed enervation that Christianity was having on his power. He noticed there were some beautiful Christian temples, uh, churches. He noticed that there were Christians flaunting their faith. And in particular... He participated in a sacrifice that failed. Nothing could be foretold, and only doom was sensed as each lamb was opened up and there was no sign. Um, eagles were opened up and there were no signs. All right? And the Romans were getting attacked by the Persians and were being threatened by the Persian forces. 
Slaughter after slaughter of these animals revealed nothing. And the tension began to rise with the emperor's frustration becoming more and more obvious. Diocletian asked, what is keeping the deities of Rome from speaking? What is going wrong? And one of his generals says, it must be the presence of profane persons. And so Diocletian goes back to his court and asks for all Christians to step forward. And all were thus ordered to sacrifice, court officials as well as all the military men. If the failed sacrifice was not enough, just a little time thereafter, during the same ritual, a Christian deacon by the name of Romanus burst into the room where the imperial sacrifice was being held and brashly denounced the worship of demons. Well, you can imagine what happened to this guy, huh? He was immediately taken away, his hands were cut off, his tongue was ripped out, and they were posted outside the gates for all to see. In just a few days' time, he was executed in public view. Diocletian then sensed how he could not allow such dissension any longer. And on February 23rd, 303, he took down bit by bit, brick by brick, the beautiful new church at Nicomedia. And the next day, he proclaimed publicly his edict against the Christians, February of 303, the most brutal and most universal denunciation of our faith to date. Of course, Obama's not done, but uh, Christians, <laughs> this isn't being recorded, Christians were forbidden to gather publicly, prohibited to possess scriptures or any religious vessels or accoutrements, books, and were denied any voice in public dealings. By the end of the week, the imperial palace where Diocletian lived in Nicomedia caught fire and was destroyed, which only fueled rumors that the Christians were involved in guerrilla warfare. You can imagine what this did to Diocletian. One member of Diocletian's court was Constantius, his strong man in the far western regions of the empire. Constantius was a low-born man. He took a wife from the Black Sea named Helena. She was an innkeeper's daughter, according to St. Ambrose. And together, it seems, they had only one son, a boy born at Nasus in modern-day Serbia, February of 272 or 273. They named the boy Constantinus, Constantine, after his politically eager father. Those ambitions of his father paid off. In 293, when Constantius put Helena away in order to marry the co-emperor Maximian's daughter, Theodora. So Maximian here has a daughter named Theodora who's uh, available. Constantinus puts Helena away and says, thanks, thanks for the baby, talk to you later, and takes the emperor's uh, daughter, okay? This is something that's quite common in the ancient world. With Constantius, now Maximian Caesar in the West, he enjoyed penultimate authority in Spain, France, and England, Hispania, Gaul, and Britannia. Constantius was celebrated widely in 296 when he squelched the British insurrection, led by the traitors Carusius. Carusius was a, pretty much a pirate who would sail the English waters and took anything that the Romans tried to get into Britain. He was quite efficient, and Constantius put him down. At winter's end in 302, Constantius worked hard at securing the borders in modern-day Switzerland, northern France, and all along the Rhone River. He next returned to Britannia in order to suppress the Picts behind the Antonine Wall in northern England. Think of where Scotland and England are divided up that way. In 303, when Diocletian announced his persecutions against the Christian church, Constantius' rival in the east, Galerius, all right, Galerius, 
maneuvered to exploit this opportunity to cast suspicion against Constantius's religious beliefs. Here are the questions he asked. Why hasn't Constantius been harsher against Christians in the West, especially the Christians thriving in Gaul, and he meant Lyon and Vienne? Why did he have a daughter named Anastasia now with Maximian's daughter Theodora? Don't name a daughter resurrection unless you mean it. Such widespread propaganda raised the possibility that Constantius at least knew and respected some Christians, although surely not a Christian himself. After issuing this anti-Christian directive, which only furthered the demand for imperial persecution and the renunciation of Christ, Diocletian entered Rome. This is in 303, okay? He just, <clears throat> he just issued this edict. Christians should be done away with, put an end to finally. He enters Rome expecting a cultic and solemn welcome. He instead found what today's Romans call a fredezza, aloofness, the cold shoulder. Romans didn't care he was there. He immediately left Rome unexpectedly. And the sacrifices he was going to perform in Rome, he performed in Ravenna instead. But he traveled from Ravenna not on horseback, but in a litter for the first time, showing obvious signs of weakness and internal sickness. In May of 305, Diocletian, the great anti-Christian emperor, placed himself in front of the statue of Jupiter in Nicomedia in Turkey, where he had been first elevated to emperor back in 284, 25 minutes ago, all right? <laughs> he freely abdicated his imperial title of Augustus, the first Roman leader ever to have done so, to, to quit. Most Roman emperors died on the battlefield. And guess who became the new emperor in the young, Const the, the young Constantinus, and he now is on the warpath, all right? With Diocletian's abdication, Constantinus was, of course, elevated to Augustus, the sole leader in the West. First and always a soldier, though, Constantinus remained in Britain to fight and secure the northern border, and he fell ill and succumbed to what was probably pneumonia dying in what's York today, Eburicum, July 25th, 306. All right, Constantine's father dies. Upon Constantius' death in 306, his army unanimously pledged their well-armed support to his warrior son Constantine, who had just arrived from Nicomedia in Diocletian's court because he understood that chances are Galerius was not going to make him anything in the court and would probably seek to kill him, so he fled, and he makes his way to England, all right? After receiving his father's blessing and the warrior's uh, pledge of allegiance, Constantine and his men, about 40,000 of them, marched in through Gaul, down Switzerland, into Italy. All right. During this time of great tension in the West, Galerius is dying, and as a deathbed favor, frees all Christians under his rule to forego the Diocletian edict against them. Historians are struck. So why does Galerius go against the very thing that Diocletian wanted to succeed in? Here's the Tetrarchy, by the way, you can see. So Caesar has, Constant, Constantius has these, the, the yellow parts. Um, okay, Diocletian lets go of these parts. And then Galerius here, who is dying, has these very important parts here, all right, along the Black Sea. In 311, Galerius issues this Edict of Toleration. And here's what it says. After the publication of our edict ordering the Christians to conform to the ancient institutions, 
Many of them were brought into line through fear. All right? This is the Diocletian. We're now pleased to great indulgence to these, allowing the Christians the right to exist again and to set up their places of worship, provided they do not offend the public order. We will, in further instruction, explain to the magistrates how they should conduct themselves in this matter. In return for this indulgence of ours, it will be the duty of Christians to pray to God for our recovery, God here in the singular, for the public weal and their own, that the state may be preserved from danger on every side, and that they themselves may dwell safely in their homes. It's fairly nice. There's a coin of Galerius there. So when we think of the Edict of Milan, we have to remember that there is somewhat precedent uh, in this Edict of Toleration of 311. Still intent on having unchallenged power, Constantine spends the summer and the fall of 312 marching his troops down into Italy. On October 28, 312, Constantine nears Rome and outmaneuvers the general Maxentius, which technically would have been his, his, should have been his Caesar. Huh? Constantine caught up to Maxentius at the Saxa Rubra along the Flaminian Way. And in flight, Maxentius is caught off guard and drowned in the Tiber, approximately five miles south of today's Ponte Milvio, the, Pont, the, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. The night before this battle, Augustine, er, Augustine, today's Augustine's birthday, by the way. Francis Cabrini gets all the credit, but <laughs> November 13th, 354. All right. The night before this battle, Constantine received this vision, and you have this on your handout. This is from Raphael in the Vatican that he, he saw the sign of the Cairo, of Christ holding the cross, and he heard this voice in hoc signo, either vince, you will conquer the imperative, or vince, you will. Um, either way, he receives something, right? As historians, we never know exactly. As theologians, I do believe the Lord spoke to him somehow. Okay. From this decisive battle, Constantine emerged as the sole leader in the West. And in February of the following year, 313, he met with the Augustus of the East, a guy named Licinius, and they met together in Milan. Together they drew up a sort of plan within which is the decision to put a final end to all the Diocletian persecutions which began in 303. While there had been imperial calls for greater tolerance of Christians, as we've seen, the so-called Edict of Milan went further, not only in topographical scope in, in area, but in its intent to level the proverbial playing field by granting Christians all the same rights as the veteran pieties of the empire. The edict did not make the Roman Empire, and it did not make Europe Christian. It didn't enforce Christianity on anyone. Constantine himself never relinquished the originally pagan title of the chief bridge builder between heaven and earth, the Pontifex Maximus. Nor did he ever significantly interfere with the imperial cult, and he was even apotheosized, made a god on his deathbed in 337. But what he did in 313 with the Edict of Milan was to allow the beauty of Christianity to shine unfettered, no longer living through the mercy of others, but finding itself on level ground, enabled to match other creeds and cults, uninhibited and unchallenged from above. The playing field had been leveled. Christianity was now able to evangelize without the bloody deaths of the martyrs, but now through the everyday lives of the baptized. The text that we have for the Edict of Milan, and this is the huge statue, 40 foot tall, that would have been on the Capitoline Hill of Constantine, all right? So he's not shy. Um, and here's his foot, all right? 
So think, think, how, think how big this thing was, right? I don't know what that is. It's like the St. Louis Arch. You can look out on a, I don't know what that was. But. All right, and I don't know who that is. I just found this online. I'm trusting she's not a little person. Um, that thing was 40 feet tall, all right? Edict of Milan. I, Constantine Augustus, as well as I, Licinius Augustus, so remember the two Augusti of West and East, happily met at Milan and had under consideration all matters which concern the public advantage and safety. Now, isn't that interesting, friends? They're concerned about the public advantage and the unity of the empire. They're not theologians. We thought that among all the other things that we saw would benefit the majority of men, the arrangements which above all needed to be made were those which ensured reverence for the divinity so that we might grant both to Christians and to all men freedom to follow whatever religion each one wished in order that whatever divinity there is in the seat of heaven may be appeased and made propitious towards us and towards all who have been set under our power. I put this up there so we can talk about it later, but isn't that interesting? Their concern is, is the civil wheel and unity of the state. And you know what? Whatever God's out there, that God's going to be happy with whatever we do, as long as we all do it together, right? Even liberals, right? <laughs> Liberal in, 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 in the classic sense, you know? Each person is allowed to follow his or her own, own religion as long as they don't interfere in others. We thought, therefore, that in accordance with salutary and most correct reasoning, we ought to follow the policy of regarding this opportunity as one not to be denied to anyone at all whether he wished to give his mind to the observance of the Christian or to that religion which he felt was most fitting to himself. So that the supreme divinity, whose religion we obey with free minds, may be able to show in all matters his accustomed favor and benevolence towards us. For this reason, we wish your reverence to know that we've resolved that all the conditions which were con contained in letters previously sent to your office about the Christian name, namely the Edict of Galerius, being completely set aside, those measures should be repealed which seemed utterly inauspicious and foreign to our clemency, and that each individual, one of those who share the same wish to observe the religion of the Christians, should freely and straightforwardly hasten to do so without anxiety or interference. Last paragraph. We thought that this should be very fully communicated, your solicitude, so that you should know that we've given free and absolute permission to these same Christians to practice their religion. And when you perceive that this indulgence has been accorded by us to these people, your reverence understands that others have been granted a similarly open and free permission to follow their own religion and worship as befits the peacefulness of our times, so that each man may have a free opportunity to engage in whatever worship he's chosen. This we've done to ensure that no cult or religion may seem to have been impaired by us. Moreover, with respect to the Christians, we formally gave certain orders concerning the places appropriated for the religious assemblies. But now we will that all persons who have purchased from such places either from our exchequer, our treasurer, or from anyone else, do restore them to the Christians. So give the Christians any property, anything you've taken from them back, without money demanded or price claimed, that this be performed peremptorily and unambiguously, and we will also, that they who have attained any right to such places by form of gift, do forthwith restore them to the Christians, reserving always to such persons who have either purchased for a price or gratuitously acquired them to make application to the judge of the district, if they look on themselves as entitled to any equivalent from our beneficence. All right. This goes on, but you have it. We're going we're gonna to skip these. Okay. The Edict of Milan survives in Lactantius's Latin and in Eusebius's Greek, with only a few minor differences between them. It's quite amazing, actually. First off, recall that Milan is a place of memory. The letter is neither written nor promulgated there, but it's the opening city in which the two Augusti meet. Two. This is not an edict, but a letter of Licinius to the governors of his eastern province. 
So the one thing you can remember tonight about our lecture on the Edict of Milan, it's neither an edict nor is it from Milan, all right? It's neither an edict, it's not from Milan, but it does represent the development of church and state relations. The Christianity is no longer simply tolerated, nor is it to be considered un-Roman. The pagan mind is now stretched to include all worthy ways of worship. Constantine and Licinius bold enough to give all religions equal voice in the panoply of Mediterranean worship. New inroads for the Catholic Church was followed by Constantine's obvious personal inclination toward the Christian way of life. Shortly after issuing the Edict of Milan, in the West at least, Constantine did this. He abolished crucifixion as a form of punishment. The kind, gentle man replaced it with public hanging. Okay. He declared Sunday an official day of rest and put an end to all civil and mercantile activity and taxation of Christian clergy. That's me. He outlawed keeping slaves in solitary confinement for more than 24 hours. And he also, and I like this one, he forbade branding uh, slaves on the face. You're a master, you own slaves. I knew that'd get your attention, right? You brand them on the face, they're yours for life, right? You were only allowed now to brand them on the feet or legs. And in that letter, he says that the face is the place where the Imago Dei resides. You think about that. The image of God is in the human face. By the end of his life, he would come to outlaw gladiatorial games, as well as at least begin the anti-pagan regiment of forbidding alien creeds and tearing down Roman temples which would find full force in the Emperor Theodosius in about 380. Theodosius is the one who enforces Catholicism upon, not just allowing it to grow from below. Such rhetoric and actions were not entirely surprising from Constantine. In the latter part of 312, we have three letters of Constantine that show his Christian leanings. The first is to a, to a bishop of Carthage, Sicilian, who was in need of monetary assistance and to whom Constantine released 3,000 foles. 3,000 foles is a lot of money. They're huge bronze coins. All right? And Constantine is then not only the first emperor to allow Christianity globally, but also becomes the first imperial patron, the first one we know who gave the church money. The other two letters from the end of 312 and early 313 are to a North African proconsul, a Roman official, Anulinus. So where the bishop received help with money, the political leader gets help about God. Constantine warns the proconsul that properly worshiping God of Christians is of the utmost importance to the unity of the empire. Besides the edict in these three letters, we have three other documents associated with Constantine. The first is the inventio. You know what inventio is in Latin, right? Invention, discovery. We have a document of Helena discovering the cross in Jerusalem. You know, she's walking, oh, there it is. Okay, all right. And there are many, many beautiful stories associated with that, all right. We also have a thing called the Donatio, in which Constantine hmm, hands all the temporal power and buildings and rule to the Pope, all right. These are medieval forgeries, all right. Well, he may have stood the times of histori historiographical naivete. These two documents are not authentic, although they were considered such for a long time. But the third, the third document, the Oratio ad Santos, the Oration to the Saints, 
I want to conclude tonight by arguing that it was delivered in Rome, possibly in the Easter of 313. The oratio is, I think, quite clear from Constantine himself. That has never been in question. It reveals both his own as well as his newly appointed court bishop, a guy named Hosius of Cordoba. Uh, you have to remember, Constantine had a bishop with him in his court as his theologian, as his catechist. All right. I propose that Constantine's oration to the saints is authentically his own and appears much earlier in his career as emperor than most admit. The oration to the saints, or another way of translating the Latin is to the members of Christ's holy church, is divided into three main sections. The first is Constantine's rather learned defense of monotheism. The second and the largest chunk is on the fittingness of the incarnation. And then thirdly, the last six sections is his own personal testimony to Christianity. He says, as he concludes that we'll read, that he differs from his predecessors. Those ancient pagan rulers perished indecorously because they did not rule with the power and the praise of Christ. The orthodoxy of this speech is amazingly obvious, and the rhetorical flourishes are meant to draw the listener in and to show ultimately how Christianity is the fulfillment of all prior learning. In this oration, for example, Constantine argues that the Roman Sibyl hints at the descent of Christ, that Virgil foreshadows the birth of Christ, and he provides the first acrostic ichthus with any real deep reflection. You know the fish ichthus? This is all in this oration. And for that, I really do think that it's an underappreciated document in the history of, Rome, of Christian apology. Within the 26 long sections, there are only two places where we receive internal evidence of the place and the occasion of the oration. We hear in section 22 that the audience before Constantine constitutes his most dear city, and that there are violent emperors of recent memory who are no longer even worth naming here. Given these sorts of hints, I argue along with my my professor Mark Edwards, that this oration was delivered in Rome shortly after the Edict of Milan, possibly as early as the Easter season of 313. For we know that Constantine took the Eternal City in 312 and was not present there again after 315. We also know that Easter time was a time that bishops used to create civil harmony. For against the Donatists, the Circumcellions, for example, Easter time is a way that other North African bishops tried to create some peace pact, all right? Eastertide had become a time for stressing unity and ecclesial concord. Constantine's mentioning Rome after the phrase, dearest city, is not an allusion to two different places, but the strengthening that this is the place where Constantine rules, that these are his people. I don't know if the last time you went to a rock concert, and somebody was like, hey, it's Steubenville, and you all erupted, right? This is what Constantine's doing. I don't know if that happens in Steubenville, but all right. <laughs> While the place and date of the speech are not unimportant, let's finish, we've got five minutes, to turn to four quotations. The first is from section 11 and serves as a challenge to any in the audience not convinced of Constantine's Christianity. Fearless in his unchallenged rule, Constantine warns any infidels present that they should leave now so they don't have to think about their fate. I do that opening day of class at SLU. I say, I'm going to pray. I can't ask you to pray, but if you don't, just be silent and think about hell if you're not praying. <laughs> he does this. Away then, you impious, for still ye may, while vengeance 
The only one I could find that I didn't type in myself is off uh, newadvent.org. So this is like 1890 translation. Dr. Hildebrand will provide us with a better translation soon. <laughs> Away then, you impious, for still ye may, while vengeance on your transgressions is yet withheld, be gone to your sacrifices, your feasts, your scenes of revelry and drunkenness, wherein under the semblance of religion your hearts are devoted to prof profligate enjoyment, pretending to perform sacrifices yourselves, uh, the willing slaves of your own pleasures. No knowledge have ye of any good, nor even of the first commandment of the mighty God, who both declares his will to man and gives commission to his Son, Jesus, to direct the course of human life. I have now declared the decree of God respecting the life which he prescribes to man, neither ignorantly, as many have done, nor resting on the ground of opinion or conjecture. That's a very strong way to open, huh? That Constantine sees. He, he sees that monotheism and this Christian way of life is the only way that we worship God rightly, that all other ways of worshiping God are ultimately about ourselves. <clears throat> we stay at the center of things, right? That this new way is the way that we are purified. First off, it's quite clear that Constantine is intent to preserve the monotheism for which Christians have been persecuted. They refuse to worship the gods and goddesses of Rome, but yet they speak as if there are two they worship. All right, here, <coughs> this is the next section. From where does Jesus receive the title of son, which is the generation of which we speak, if God indeed be only one and incapable of union with another? We should, however, consider two kinds of generation. This is fairly sophisticated for a soldier, huh? No offense to you Razi guys, but I mean, this guy, he never studied theology. One in the way of natural birth, which is known to all, the other that to the effect of an eternal cause, the mode of which is seen by the prescience of God and by those among whom he loves. And stop there. This is fairly sophisticated stuff. It's not yet God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Yet Constantine is out to show that the unity of persons within the Trinity do not violate the Christian monotheism. Okay? The appreciation for the divine descent of God into human flesh was precisely, if you remember back to that first slide, the absurdity for which the Christians were originally derided. Alex Semenos worships his God, this asinine deity fallen prey to the cross of the Roman mighty empire. But now this kenosis, this emptying, is understood as our salvation, the only way that God could calibrate his greatness to our lowliness. This is uh, section 14. For the only power in man which can be elevated to a comparison with that of God is sincere and guileless service and devotion of heart to himself, with the contemplation and study of whatever pleases him, the raising of our affections above the things of earth, and directing our thoughts as far as we may to high and heavenly objects. For from such endeavors it is said a victory accrues to us more valuable than many blessings. In the wise acquiesce with abundant thankfulness and joy, while those who are dissatisfied display their own folly, and their arrogance will reap its due reward. Look at that first line. The only power in us which can be elevated to a comparison with that of God, the way we become godly, is sincere and guileless service and devotion. You don't see that in Roman religion, service and devotion. So you know the oracle at Delphi, right? Remember the inscriptions? You probably all know, know thyself. What's another one? Nothing in excess, right? There's another one. There's, there's like 713 of these things. Commitment brings agony. Now think of that. That's the world in which Christ came. Commitment brings agony. For the Greek or the Roman, you stood aloof, right? Know yourself. For the Christian, if you want to know yourself, you ask your best friend, right? It's a second-person relationship, I-thou kind of thing. 
And this is exactly what Constantine is picking up in the middle of the oration. All right. He then asked this. <clears throat> what then have you gained by these atrocious deeds, most impious of men? And what was the cause of your insane fury, you persecuting all these Christians? You will say, doubtless, these acts of words are done in honor of the gods. Oh well, yeah, what gods are these? Or what worthy conception have you of the divine nature? Do you think the gods are subject to angry passions as you are? Were it so indeed, it would have been better for you to wonder at their strange determination than obey their harsh command when they urge you to the unrighteous slaughter of innocent men. You will allege perhaps the customs of your ancestors and the opinions of mankind in general as the cause of your conduct. I grant the fact. But those customs are very like the acts themselves and proceed from the self-same source of folly. You thought it may be that some special power resided in images formed and fashioned by human art, and hence your reverence and diligent care, lest they should be defiled. Those mighty and highly exalted gods thus dependent on the care of men. So at the end of this speech, Constantine is canvassing all the possible Roman reasons why they persecuted the Christians. It might be because they have a false understanding of God. It may be out of mere tradition and Roman mores, or it might be because these, these architectural and iconic images uh, demand that they be served through, through conquest and blood. This is why the Orazio ends with an inquiring exhortation to the deadest of the dead, Constantine's predecessors, who strove to suppress Christian might, reaching fever pitch. Huh? These three causes of Christian persecutions are thus given, the gods, the customs, and the art of Rome. None of these can match the only accurate conception of divinity which the Christians alone have revealed. The one true God has allowed his faithful to suffer in order to bring the empire to this moment, a moment of collective admittance of wrongdoing, but more importantly, a moment of new conversion, an opportunity for all those intent on truth. This is, of course, just the beginning of Constantine's rule. We've not even addressed the founding of Constantinople in 324, the intrigue in his appointing Catholic bishops, especially out in rural areas, as well as the nature and the results of the church's first ecumenical council at Nicaea, called by Constantine in 325. What we try to do here tonight is to situate Constantine in the context of the one who knew the persecution of Christians, but one who saw the integrity and the long-suffering of Christ faithful as victorious. 313, 1700 years ago, thus marks a tremendously important date in our mother church's life. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.